Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm chatting with Chaz Smith about his third book, Reports from Hell, out with Rare Bird Books in 2020. His previous books include Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell, A True Story of Violence, Corruption, and the Soul of Surfing, and Cocaine and Surfing, A Sordid History of Surfing's Greatest Love Affair. And then this year, he published Blessed Are the Bank Robbers, The True Adventures of an Evangelical Outlaw. While currently known as one of the more prominent surf journalists, uh, Chaz Smith started his career as a war correspondent in the Middle East. His experiences are chronicled in Reports from Hell, with his trademark wry, self-effacing, and ironic, but also thoughtful, informed, and dare I say, even touching prose. Uh, Chaz Smith, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you so much for having me, Michael Van, <laughs> Dr. Michael Van. And, and uh, welcome back, because we we chatted about two years ago about uh, cocaine and surfing, and um, that was right when this book came out, and now it's 2022, and your fourth book is out, so maybe uh, we can get you back for that, or, but all the, but I really, what I really want to talk to you about at some point is Welcome to Paradise, um, and oh, we can do a 10-year retrospective on that. Did that come out in 2012? I think so. I think it's almost ten years old. That's crazy. Yeah, we do it. We can do a t- a ten year anniversary. Uh, For sure, uh, a, a Criterion uh, Collection Platinum Edition or something. It's, I just had to read that book for uh, Audible, uh, uh-huh. so they didn't have someone read it. So having to revisit it almost ten years on and read my words ten years later was such a shocker. But yeah, I chuckled at times. Good, good or bad? What was that like? I mean, it's just hard. Like, have you ever read your old stuff and thought, oh, my yeah, goodness. It's kind of cringe, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was that. But also there was times where I was chuckling, thinking, oh, this wasn't so bad. Like, I would go from depths of like, this. I wish I could change this to like, well, that's pretty funny. I'm glad I wrote that. I, I think I think it's a great book. I love it. And um, and it, it did rather well. Um, I got you beat on that reading uh, – um, your own stuff. I had a student um, submit a paper and I was reading it and it was on uh, Malacca, one of the cities in, in Malaysia, on the history of Malacca. And I was looking at him like, one, this is pretty good. Two, I'm fairly certain the student didn't write this. And three, there's a couple of things in here. I don't know. I'd rephrase. And then so I, so I cut and pasted and Googled the uh, the section I thought was plagiarized. Was something I wrote 15 years ago. Oh, epic. <laughs> I mean, getting by your own student, by your own self. I mean, that I think a- that's the height of of like straight up beauty right there. <laughs> I, I I enjoyed the moment. Um, I also enjoyed composing the email to the student. Uh, I mean, he must have gotten there, right? <laughs> like for sure, he got a straight up. If you're going to plagiarize from me, I think I think we're going into the. Well, I I said you could have found a better source. <laughs> someone who knows what they're talking about um anyway let's 
enough about me. Let's talk about you. Um, tell us a little bit about your writing style. I mean, we chatted about this last time and some of your influences. I mean, I, I, um, I think we talked about Joan Didion and, um, and so forth, but like who influences your writing style? I mean, still, it's like probably totally dated and dumb to even say this at this point. Not, I mean, it was probably dated and dumb to say it when I talked to you last time. But new journalism, I mean, you know, Tom Wolfe, Hunter Thompson, Didion, like this whole era of like, these are the books that I got. I think I probably discovered them when I was, I don't know, probably early 20-ish and just fell in love with the genre of new journalism. And I don't know why I was so late onto it, uh, but it was brand new to me. Right. And so reading like the way that these authors were journalism, right. I mean, they were in their like in the moment interviewing, doing the thing, but then also writing narrative out of it just like hooked me apparently so deeply where that's still my real only influences is new journalism. And I do a horrible version of it, uh, which Derek Riley uh, coined as trash prose, but, uh, yeah, (laughs) but like, yeah, it's that it's like, I feel still to this day, I can never, or it's really hard for me to create a story that's better than, reality and so if you can be weaving a funny narrative out of reality then i don't know what's better than that and you know i guess i'm so i mean since the last time we've talked uh i've like oh who wrote submission uh michelle no oh i'm michelle well back uh, uh hold on back. as some of the phd yeah. in french well, history back. i should be able to pronounce his last name michelle Webber, well, submission Yes. Welbeck is how you pronounce it. And so that like blew me absolutely away. Uh, And, you know, I've read things since, uh, but it's still the stinking new journalists who are my North star. Yeah. So, okay. So what, I mean, what does that mean for you? It's, it's, it's putting yourself into the narrative. Um, Like I just feel that, for me thinking about it uh, of all kind of storytelling and all journalism for that matter is subjective and which is so much, I mean, amplified so much more in the era we live in, right? Like this post Trump or even through the Trump where you read CNN and all this uh, New Yorker, New York times, Washington post, like, all of these things are written as like factual kind of, you know, this is journalism very clearly from a, this is what I think, or this is my worldview perspective where at least new journalism takes it where putting, again, I guess it seems narcissistic, but putting me in the center of the story is a way that I felt I could tell a story where I'm not harming somebody else because I'm writing from my perspective and you can shoot all the arrows at me and you will be right in shooting those. I will try to tell this story as true as I feel it, but not lie about the subject of nature about what I'm doing. And God bless journalists who can go and peel themselves out of it and really go get to the heart of a story, right? Like I'm not denigrating journalism. I love journalism, 
Uh, I just don't have the skill set to tell an unbiased story, I suppose. And so I feel my answer to that is throwing myself into the middle of it and thereby telling a story that's clearly from my perspective, that then this is truth as I saw it, but also my truth, right? And so go crucify me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you know, it's it seems easier for you because you seem to have, at least in your prose and chatting with you in these podcasts, a pretty outgoing and inquisitive personality. You're, you're pretty fearless getting yourself into uh, various forms of trouble, which we'll talk about in the book. But um, I mean, that I think that a more reserved individual would have trouble living the same story that you, you get to write up, right? I mean, well, the function I think, of your personality plays plays a role there. Totally. And I think all the, to me, what I loved about the new journalist kind of movement and new journalists in general was like Joan Didion, right? Like saw herself as a total wallflower. Like her skill was being unobtrusive and sitting on the fringes and watching. Uh, Hunter Thompson would be right in there mixing it up, right? And so I feel like, I don't know, the way or leaning on just what you have as personality quirks, like where I punch me in the face all day, every day. Uh, Like I am not scared. I love to take a punch probably, you know, to my, to my own detriment, but yeah. So like there's, there's a couple of moments in welcome to hell where I I thought it was going to happen too. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) where, and it's happened regularly, but yeah, that's my own, that's my personality. And that's, it's easy just to be you, you know, in those moments, like instead of trying to do something that's not you. Yeah. I've got, I've got a little Joan Didion story for you. Um, uh, her first, one of her first pieces, I don't know if it was like, it was something like Mademoiselle or Marie Claire or something, but it was about, um, it was a profile of sorority culture at UC Berkeley in 60 or 61. And the sorority sister tried to help Delta, 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 that she, um, shadowed for two weeks was my mom. And my mom was always so proud of this, so proud of this her whole life. And always told me, you know, well, Joan Didion's first piece was, you know, really about me. But I never, ever, I never, ever got to see it. And she's like, oh, I've got a copy somewhere. I've got a copy somewhere. Um, And then like, as you know, as I got older, I found out there was actually a borderline hit piece on sorority culture and, and sort of like moving out of Eisenhower conformity and so forth. And then when mom passed away, I finally found a copy of it in her, in her papers. And uh, yeah, no, I don't think my mom came off that well in it. <laughs> but my mom was one of those, there's no such thing as bad press types. <laughs> it was important that Joan Didion wrote about her, not what she wrote. It's funny. That's like always kind of what I hope for too, is in telling a truth or a personal truth that, yeah, for sure. Like Joan Didion, I mean, from what I have read of her would not have been down with sorority culture, right? It would have been everything that she was against. (laughs) Also for your mom to feel like this was awesome. Like where I feel there can be some kind of marriage there where it's not just a, for sure it was a hippie, right? It was not what, I mean, I can't imagine what Joan was down with. Uh, But for your mom to feel good about it, that's like a real sweet marriage, I think. But like in writer and subject because it's hard like anytime you're writing a subject Hmm. i mean even with like the latest one with old cousin danny bank robber like 
how do you do, how do you tell a truth, make the subject feel okay, and then make something interesting for the reader? Like it's a odd triangulation. Yeah. And, and listeners, please take notes because when we actually actually get around to talking about the book that we're talking about today, he, this is important for the subjects that he's, uh, that uh, Chaz Smith and his, and his colleagues were looking at at the time. Um, before, before we get into the book, can you just tell us a little bit about your, your education and how you got drawn both to war reporting, but also drawn to the Middle East? I, I think you studied at least a semester in Egypt. Um, yeah, so I did, like, as a kid, I was, because of my uncle Dave, who I, yeah, was a missionary ostensibly, but uh, showed me a slideshow when I was a kid. Uh, Wait, is this the same the, Uncle Dave that's the bank robber? Exactly. He's the same Uncle Dave that's the father of the bank okay, robber. Okay, so that's the, uh, the father. Okay, so that's the newest book. But okay, yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll, but, we'll talk about that at the very end. But, um, yeah. but I'm sorry, go on. Yeah. But Uncle Dave uh, showed a slideshow of you know, missionary, like smuggling stinger missiles into Afghanistan when I was a kid. And that's what I couldn't have been older than, I don't know, 11 or 12. And that's what hooked me into the Middle East of thinking this Middle East, what is this? Uh, and so when I got to college, yeah, studied a semester at University of Cairo or AUC, uh, American University of Cairo, and just, you know, learned enough Arabic. And it just fell in love with the entire Middle East and what the Middle East was and sort of what the Middle East is. And yeah, so uh, yeah, got my master's in applied linguistics, uh, which oddly now I can't remember why, but <laughs> uh, I mean, graduate degrees are weird, but uh, the whole thing was still, you know, Middle East. Like I, I expected to live in the Middle East at some point. Well, so, I mean, I, I, most of my work has been on France, but then increasingly Southeast Asia. And I've got a real passion for that region. And, and I always um, am interested in other sort of like area specialists. Like, what is it specifically? Because in, in the book, you talk a lot about the food and, and patterns of the culture and, and, and the natural beauty and, and so forth. But like, what are the things about sort of greater Middle East? Or, I mean, we're really looking at sort of Arabic um, culture. What, what really draws you in? I mean, you're, you spent time in, in Egypt. Yeah, for this book, Yemen, Lebanon, um, uh, where else? And, and what what is it like? What 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 gets you? I mean, I mean obviously, you, you 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 write very beautifully about the um, the uh, the shawarmas of uh, chicken shawarmas of Lebanon, but um, yeah. more, more than that, what's? I think it was the underlying basis that belief is like legitimate and be- like this belief in Islam for them, right? In one God and all this kind of stuff may like as a Christian. And of course I think Christianity and Islam, maybe you would think, you know, are far afield, but they're not that really like I believe you're, too, all, right? you're all, you're all children of Abraham. Precisely. And so that like this basis allowed me, I feel uh, just a way in. And so sure we differ on this, that, and the other thing, but we both believe and, this hard belief, the idea of belief and things founded on belief, I think made it easy for me to both communicate and love and I think be understood in this thing, right? Where it was like, okay, I get it. You're a Westerner and you're different, but you believe. And we could always, I could always come to an understanding on the basis of belief, which is the essence of, 
of my core. And when the essence of your core, like it's in some ways, I am more akin to them than, you know, secularist United States. Mm-hmm. And and so so in uh, reports from hell, the subject of the book, um, or so to this podcast, um, you talk about um, that m- maybe your faith actually helps you understand um, some of these uh, Islamist fundamentalists that you you are uh, studying, encountering, reporting on. I mean, you, you know, you have, we'll get into it, but you have encounters with sort of Al Qaeda adjacent, shall we say, and then directly with Hezbollah and. Um, I think you say in the book several times that you that your faith maybe gives you a better connection with them. Is that completely? Like and, I think right? that, yeah. and I think they understand it in in me too, right? At the end, it's not I'm not looking at this academically or like okay, I understand that you guys believe this or think this, you know, and that's weird or outdated. Like I believe too in a weird, outdated way, and so I think in in that. Uh, the conversation can go in a interesting way of, again, Christianity and Islam are not, you know, sure, people of the book, right? The idea of in Islam, uh, there is the people of the book, which is Jews, Christians, and Muslims, where, of course, Muslims don't really like Jews or Christians. But at the end, when stuff boils out, I think the idea that you don't believe in this one God is anathema to them. And so the fact that I actually do believe in the same God as them, well, maybe not the same God, but uh, people of this people of the book kind of idea. Now we can, now we can start talking because I'm not looking at you thinking you guys are weird. Like this idea of God is a relic of, you know, pre whatever enlightenment shit and anybody who knows anything knows that god doesn't exist and you know we killed god with stinking nietzsche decades ago like we're on to the next thing uh or that's not me and so i'm i feel more akin again to that and to hardcore belief where i look at them thinking you're gonna go die for god and ah, yeah, it's rough. Like go suicide bomb and take people out. But again, the idea of this belief as your core—that's something that that we can talk about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so get, getting into the book, um, it's in the book's in three parts. The first is about this initial uh, sort of adventures travelogue to Yemen. Um, then there's a there's second sections on your experience. Um, reporting from Lebanon during the uh, the Israeli incursion invasion. Um, and then the third part is back to Yemen and then on to India. Um, when we talk about each each of these parts, um, what was what was the premise of your initial trip to Yemen? Um, I think that maybe the the non the non surfers in the new books audience, which um, maybe the vast majority of the audience um, might be a little surprised by this one, and I and I vaguely remember when this came out. Um, I mean, truth be told, I stopped actually reading the words in Surfer and Surfing many years ago, and just looked at the pictures. Um, <laughs> but um, what was the the initial premise of this uh, trip to Yemen that makes up the first section? I mean, the initial premise was like having kind of just come off again, like studying in Egypt, and then heading back again and again and again to the region. Uh, 9-11 happened and then 
learning that Osama bin Laden's was from and his family was from Yemen. And so just looking at Yemen, right? And as a surfer, I grew up surfing uh, in Oregon. So weird surfing, I suppose. So I suppose weird surfing was my kink. Uh, but looking at Yemen and thinking, wow, this is, this Yemen, like it bends Indian Ocean. Like it's got to be getting swell. Nobody had ever surfed it before. And just thinking, this has to be getting swell. Uh, nobody surfed it. This is where Osama bin Laden's family's from. And those three things just kept beating in my head. And I thought, this is a, I got to do this. So that was the initial kink, sort of, of getting to this place that nobody had ever surfed. Uh, surf oddly gives a reason to go somewhere right? Like, so for the non-surfers out there, you travel to a country with no reason to be there, then why are you there? And it's always, I think, especially in places people don't go, like you can go to Paris with no reason, or people know your reason. Like you want to see the Eiffel Tower and go to the Louvre, or it could be deeper. You want to, you know, study Proust or whatever you're doing. Uh, Outside of that, like, I think people are suspect who aren't there for a reason. In Yemen, surfing, that was reason enough. Like, even though they had never seen it before or didn't understand it as a thing, when, and again, you know, so that trip, it was like three months, me and two buddies, we were the first people to ever do that stretch of coast, to ever surf it. Uh, We're the first Westerners they'd seen deep up in there. Uh, People don't go to Yemen, right? But Yeah. And what what, what year is this? This was two, it was right after, it was, I think, 2020 or 2002. When was 9-11? 2001. Yeah, it was 2002. <laughs> and, but, but it's is it after the invasion of Iraq? It was during the invasion of Iraq. During we the went, initial invasion? Yes, because we went to the Iraq uh, embassy in Sana'a uh, and wondered if Saddam Hussein was there at the time. So it was like right at the same time. Like I was wondering if, yeah, like Saddam was still alive and kicking or yeah, hidden at that point. Like nobody knew where he was, but it was before Saddam died. Uh, And all of this was happening, right? I mean, this was right in the thick of everything. But surfing gave, even though it's totally, completely dumb, Right, surfing. But the, the dumbest, most frivolous thing you could uh, devote your life to, and it's so much fun. Completely, but also Yemenis who had never even thought of surfing or knew of surfing. When we said, "Oh, we're going out here to surf," would be like, oh, "Okay, cool, that makes sense." And then it would be all in for dinners and whatnot, right? Like with Al Qaeda supporters, like we were doing something, and so surfing was the way in, which led to you know, access that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Like if I would have been there as a journalist and I'm going to go to Yemen to go find Osama bin Laden's family right after 9-11, there would have been all kind of, you know, no, you are CIA, you are whatever. But nope, it was, oh, you guys are serving? We don't know what that is, but okay, cool. Go, you're on a a mission here. Well, so, I mean, do you feel then that's a little disingenuous i mean you're you're there to surf but you're also there as a journalist um i mean were you were you also forthcoming about you know that 
I have a journalist. I'm going to write something up. Um, you're there with a photographer. Yeah, but I don't think they care about that. Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, they're happy to have, they're happy not only to have their, tell their stories, they're happy to have uh-huh. their stories shared. I mean, they feel, and they, talking about this big they, right, is yeah, yeah. always awkward. But yeah, so many of the people we ran into loved America and felt weird like why are we at war or why is there this big you know we love you and you clearly don't love us you're you know killing our people and there's little do they know what was going to come even at that point of this massive invasion from you know basically u.s backed invasion of yemen all this horrible stuff but there was confusion of them as why why don't you like us uh, and so, no, like, tell our story, please. Nobody comes and asks. And and I guess most importantly, um, how was the surf? Awesome. I mean, the part, so it's, I was expecting, okay, so if anybody knows Yemen, right? Like, it is has a huge Horn of Africa shadow where Horn of Africa sticks way out into it. And so I was expecting no surf, looking at the map, and when we went on this trip, this is before Google Maps or anything good. Like you couldn't the, look the, at the it. really high quality wave forecasting that they have now. Precisely. Like we were Surf looking line. at at paper maps, like thinking, okay, where's stuff gonna hit? What's the potential? I was thinking nothing. We actually got surf in Aiden, which is straight up island shadow from that doesn't that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't believe you. No, and it was fun. It was like <laughs> properly like waist to shoulder high little runners like in the in Aiden which was epic and then yeah. a bunch of dumpy beach break until we hit Mukulla and then there was pop proper point breaks and out and out and it was I mean there was so much surf there that we couldn't even get to like down cliffs and whatever but just point breaking off I mean and then of course we went to Socotra the island off of Yemen yeah. which is yeah. I mean, a surf paradise where, yeah, just got dumped there uh, and, you know, live rough for a good 10 days, like no food and nothing, but just point left point after left point after left point, like cove after cove after cove, just firing nonstop. Yeah. And, and I thought your description of, um, is it going further north east along the coast to you yeah. start to get into the monsoon zone and you go from you know tatooine style desert just dry 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 to all of a sudden this rainforest right which is wild like where the monsoon yeah. hits there it's basically yeah. at the border of oman and yemen uh yeah. and you're you are what you think of the middle east i suppose is just you know desert 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 to rainforest to proper rainforest there in that zone, which is crazy when you hit it after you've been just desert baked. And when we did that trip, 2002, it was, uh, roads have been since built of, they discovered or did discover it. I think it's always been there, but, or they knew it was there, but just, it wasn't worth to get. But now there's roads that kind of cruise up through there, that I was lucky enough to motorcycle in more recent times. But, uh, then it was just, it was basically dirt road halfway just after McCullough got dirt. And so it was, you know, sloggy travel through that region. But then when you, so you're slow, like long days after long days in the desert. And when you hit this rainforest, it's like, 
what? When you're cool and wet and green, camels wandering around nibbling? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the book does a, a number of things. It kind of works in different genres, but the, the travel log component to it, I thought was just, you know, just really great. And the, um, I mean, Yemen, Yemen truly yeah. is a, like, civil war and everything, you know, war. I, I mean, I think people typically think that Yemen is just a backwater. Yemen is honestly one of the most beautiful countries, if not the most beautiful country I've ever been to, with culture beyond culture, with, like, it. this is a deep... Saudi Arabia is fake, right? Saudi Arabia was this de- desert where these tribes came and had the money and the oil and so then built their fake Riyadh and all all their cities are fake. It is all fake. Uh, Yemen had a... That's where the people were because this is where the stuff was, right? And so Yemen... It, is it's, it's, some, it's some of the longest continuously inhabited exactly. uh, places on the earth, right? Exactly, which Saudi ain't, right? Like, and Jordan's yeah, yeah. fake. I mean, so much of the Middle East is just... Okay, the Balfour Declaration, like now these are countries and now, okay, we're going to build, you know, Amman, Jordan is an insta city. That's shit. And Dubai is a tiny fishing village that, you know, okay, great. It's funny now because it's like this weird Disneyland, but that's not, none of it's, not none of it, but very little of it is real. Yemen is real and you just don't, nobody sees it. You don't get to go see it. Like Shabam in the middle, which I write about, but there's honestly a mud brick skyscraper city in the Hadramaut, middle of Yemen. Hadramaut is an epic valley, but it is like a Manhattan. It is properly a Manhattan of mud brick skyscrapers in the middle of this desert. That's ancient. So, I mean that that section was some really great prose. But how how big are these structures? I mean, they're probably. Uh, 100 to 200 feet like yeah, mud brick I mean, and, and they're re- residential yeah resi- i mean apartments like people live in there but they when you're walking through it they tower i mean there's little a- alleys and these like they feel towering above you like oh, it is not just a yeah weird it's not small it feels on an epic scale and it's ancient yeah yeah yeah. Again, the, the travel log just for me was really captivating. I mean, this is not a part of the world where I've spent any time. I've spent a ton of time in Southeast Asia, whatever. But for this, for me, this is again so unfamiliar. And um, that, um, your your adventures there were great. But the funny thing is, like even in Mukalla, yeah. like so ancient trade routes, right? Like coming yeah. in where yeah. there was from India and Southeast Asia into Makola back oh, there's, a, there's a historic Indonesian population on that coast. Precisely. And so the, so yeah. the a lot of the architecture feels Indonesian and feels mm-hmm. like it has this flavor there of this is what it was. It was an ancient trading route along the Indian Ocean from Indonesia to here and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. there's still populations. I mean, they wear the futa, right? They wear basically Indonesian I don't know what they call it. What's the skirt? The sarong. Yes, they wear sarong. Yeah, is what they wear there because it's all like that was their that was their thing. That was their route. Indian Ocean Basin culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. So, so you, you guys do this trip. You you write it up. You get it into Surfer Magazine, and then part of that. This is this is early in your career, right? I mean, this is yeah. recently out of out of graduate school, and so yeah. you parlay that yeah. into another stage in your 
history uh, or your career as a journalist, um, which is the second section. So who uh, who do you who do you get to send you to uh, to Lebanon? I mean, that was so. I mean, after that first Yemen trip, I was just hooked on this and anything that was happening. Was just trying to find a reason to go back, uh, and so once the so did a bunch more trips. You know, I think went to Yemen again, maybe went to Somalia. We're doing whatever we could, um, and then the war, two thousand six, Israel invaded Lebanon. Had done tons of time in Lebanon, and thought, okay, we got to go do this. So uh, at that point, Al Gore, early internet days or streaming days, I suppose. Even streaming was current TV a streaming service. I you know I can't remember a damn thing that was on current TV. Um, I mean I remember it being a thing. Two thousand six. Where is Netflix even streaming videos at that point? I don't think so. I think it was this. It was this first idea that internet can be TV. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, but current I think had actual cable. They were still like. They had a uh-huh. website, uh-huh. but I think it was still heavy cable. Like we're going to be a yeah. channel, uh, yeah. and so current TV Al Gore back. Uh, I can't even remember how. I think they reached out to us, uh, and we said, "Oh, we'll go cover this war for you, me and buddies." And then, yeah, so went over to Lebanon to cover the invasion and get deep in Lebanon, which again. Love Lebanon and I've been there so many times before. So that was he surfed it. Yeah, yes. You you've been there you've been there a couple times for current and, and also for Vice, right? Yes. Yeah, for Vice, which fuck Vice. But also, yes. Vice <laughs> stole their whole model from that trip right there. That was that was the very beginning of Vice's pivot to international coverage. Ooh, rankles. Go on. Go on. <laughs> I mean stupid vice. Yeah. So uh, I had done a story early in Vice. I think this might have, yeah, this would have been right after the Yemen trip of like, so, okay, so we did this. What else can we do, right? And so I thought, oh, I'm going to, let's go skateboard with Hezbollah. And so, uh, Just, people, I, I want I want to make sure everyone heard that. The, the pitch of the idea was let's go skateboard with Hezbollah. Yeah. And that was, his, and I don't skateboard. None of us do. It was as dumb as that of like, okay, this Yemen surf thing worked. Let's go. What other action sports things can we pair with, you know, radical Islam, I suppose, at that point. And so honestly, yeah, Buddy was uh, studying at American University of Beirut, getting his master's degree in uh, Islamic studies. So it was like, here we go. Uh, did a story for Vice that I guess was pretty good. And then or the story was shit, but I guess they liked it enough. And then Vice, this is when Vice was just still a free magazine. Uh, and Vice thought, okay, we're going to do a DVD. Again, this is before Vice mm-hmm. did anything. We're going to do a DVD, Vice's Guide to the World. Uh, and they wanted to include the Skate with Hezbollah thing. And so they said, can we reprise this? And so I was like, sure, here we go. So buddies and I went back and even did better. We got into the Al-Aqsa Marvis Brigade. Uh, but so as this story was going, can, can they escape? No, but dude was like a full on bro. He was so awesome. But uh, yeah, it gives, it gives a new sense of uh, the skating term about bombing hills. Yeah, but it was but exactly. But that's I, like, it was super embarrassing that I cannot skate. 
I cannot even ollie at this point. I couldn't even probably then. It was like skating was, I think we had sector nine. It was so embarrassing. But anyway, uh, so Vice sent out a small film crew. I think it was like four people to start. Um, and then night one, we were like going around and then film crew called in, you know, Shane Smith and everybody and said, hey, this is awesome. You got to see this. And so the entire Vice upper echelon flew to Lebanon and were there for like 10 days just watching and yeah, I don't know, taking notes, I guess, and being assholes. But by the end, honestly, we had like a 15 to 20 person vice entourage following us around. And then I think they, I mean, don't think that's what they took and then made their vice TV, HBO thing and all that based on what they saw there. Which, oh yeah, I remember. I remember there was the Vice HBO project yeah. for a while. And there, then, yeah, yeah thankfully was... Vice has crashed and burned since. But yeah, yeah their yeah. million dollar valuation based on their HBO shit was based entirely on that one trip. And they're and all skate, skating with Ezra. Yeah, and Shane Smith and all of them are Sarush Alvi. He's good, but the rest of them are fucking retarded dickheads. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not sure we can. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not sure that comment was up to New Book standards, sir. But, uh, <laughs> we respect your opinion. Um, okay, so um, so that this that this is the midsection of, of your book, and um, you're you're covering the reporting, and um, things are going well. You got a good budget. You're eating well. Uh, you're getting great footage. You're beginning to realize the reality of contemporary warfare. Um, and then the last couple of days, uh, at least in the narrative, things take a pretty interesting direction. Do you want to sort of tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, dancing around these fringes, I guess, so much, right? And especially back then, still kind of, but especially then, thinking just Teflon. And so we had a bunch of footage, and back then it wasn't Teflon. You, you, that you, you guys are Teflon, and everything's bouncing off you. Yeah. Precisely, like it's there's yeah, nothing bad can ever happen. Right. And so we had to, we had a bunch of, we were shooting on, I don't know, mini DV or something dumb back then and had to get it back to Vice. And so, or I'm sorry, to current. Uh, And so Josh, buddy, and I thought, okay, everything in Lebanon was shut down at that point. All airports were shut down. There was no way to get anything out. Like to try to FedEx something was impossible. Had all this tape, all these tapes. And so I thought, okay, we got to get this out. The only airport that was working was Damascus, which is a beautiful, I mean, that used to be such a beautiful run. Like all the times I've done Lebanon, you go day trip in Damascus, right? Where it's an hour and a half out to Damascus and then no problem. So we thought, okay, all the roads are bombed. Everything's a bummer. So we need scooters. So got scooters so we could scooter our footage to Damascus delivered it felt real good about it coming back in saw more bombs in blowing up uh in the hezbollah neighborhood of beirut thought it well we're journalists we gotta go check that out so went in almost got bombed uh and then got snagged by i guess initially it was plo or palestinian liberation organization it's funny that the plo is such a weird footnote in history nobody talks about the plo anymore well, it became the PA, right? It was a Palestinian it authority. But like the idea of Yasser Arafat and all of this is feels like ancient history. Uh, 
I mean, yeah. you you are talking to a historian, so I, okay. I, I still yeah. talk, I still do talk about old things like the PLO. But, okay, perfect. But go on, sir. Go on. Let's yeah. <laughs> talk about the PLO. Uh, kids wanted, or yeah, they were young PLO folk. We're going to take us in and kill us, or they, so they said. Uh, so jumped off. They, they, th- they thought you were Israeli spotters. I think yeah, they thought we were spotting. I don't know what they thought. Those early ones, they just thought these are white guys where they shouldn't be, and mm-hmm. this is. You know, this is dumb. This is an easy with, with without all the institutional indicators of being a journalist, right? It sounds like, like you, yes, you guys are a couple, a couple a couple of bros on scooters on scooters with a yeah. camera, and yeah, I mean it was it was a bad look. Uh, so you can you can you can, under, you can understand how completely people in a neighborhood that have just gone through a pretty devastating bombing might completely like in multiple yeah. days of it, like they were in the right. So jumped off and got grabbed by another Palestinian. I guess that guy was PA, uh, like proper Palestinian. Grabbed us in, threw us into the shed. Mob gathered outside. Uh, he was like, okay, we're going to wait till this cools down. Then you guys are free to go. But just like, let's, let's let this cool off. And then came in later and said, I got a call from Hezbollah. Like they want you and there's nothing I can do at this point. I'm so sorry. So, so you're, 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 you're gently detained or you're detained. Phone call comes in from somebody else from Hezbollah. Exactly. And they, and they say, what? They said, I can't let you go. Hezbollah wants you basically. And so we're sitting, this bro, you know, bought us juices. So we're sitting there drinking juices in this garage, I guess the door is closed. You can kind of hear people outside, but like just sweating and thinking, okay, dodged a bomb. We're good. Uh, Hezbollah comes in. Literally dodged a bomb, by the way. Your description of that is intense. Yeah, Yeah. it was was hit very, very close, and it was dumb to run in there. But, you know, dumb. Uh, Yeah, so we're sitting there, breathing heavily, sweating, but feel okay. Uh, Hezbollah comes in, juices get slapped out of the hand, bags over the head, into the car, you know, pistols pressed to temples, into a dungeon, uh and then at that point i thought okay we're done like where i didn't have anything to tell i didn't have any secrets no but i was trying to think you know sort of pain is pain i guess i was trying to how much does it hurt to actually get your fingernails ripped out or teeth ripped out for all that right like it all hurts but doesn't hurt have a cap like it just hurts until i guess you pass out so it was really trying to you know, again, don't have anything to say, like, don't have any, we're not working for the CIA or FBI or U.S. military or Israeli anything like, so it was just a matter of, yeah, thinking about what pain was going to come and then got drug out of the dungeon and interrogated for a long time. But God bless Hezbollah. They, uh, yeah, let us go. Fed us dinner and let us go. Once they realize, okay, these guys aren't anything. I mean, this is, this is hours after hour, a, a night of interrogation. And yeah, then... I, think we, I think we probably got initially caught around noon uh, and then got fed dinner at probably 11 p.m. And then we're out. So it was a good six, probably six hours of interrogation after chilling in a dungeon for a minute. But yeah, like they, again, like nothing, I mean, I guess against the, like you, if we would have got, if we would have been the same 
bad luck in the U.S., we would have been if we would have been Muslims who were in the wrong place at the wrong time, we would have been Guantanamo Bayed for five years at least, and maybe never gotten out. Right? Like we were wrong place, wrong time, wrong look, wrong everything. Uh, got heavily interrogated, but honestly interrogated. Like they brought old dudes in where I remember. Like so, we our interrogator we. Buddy and I could speak a bit of Arabic, but brought in, they brought an English interrogator in or a guy who could speak English. And the whole room was filled with old, basically Muslim scholars, big gray beards, who were just sitting and watched, silent, watching everything we said. Uh, and Buddy Josh had studied, uh, was doing Islamic studies at UCLA at the time. And read at some point the Quranic verse on the wall. And I think, yeah, they really were testing our Arabic. Like, where did you learn your Arabic? I, mine was a mash of Egyptian Yemeni. Josh's was a mash of UCLA and Yemeni. Uh, sussing out, what are you? And then when they realized that we weren't uh, anything nefarious. You, you weren't a DLI uh... Yeah. Monterey uh, trained uh, exactly. Arabic speakers, we, right? We did not learn our Arabic in Monterey. That's basically what they yeah. sussed out. Yeah. And once that was sorted and our general kind of what we were doing, uh, they were cool. And it's, again, that would not have happened here. Like it would have been guilty until proven innocent. We would have been done. And oddly there, we were innocent until proven guilty. And they were cool enough with what we were to just she was out the door and after feeding us dinner, like sitting there eating dinner with Hezbollah, you know, on the floor, they brought in sparse, but brought in some cheese and bread and whatever. Uh, bombs were going off around us. Like, I mean, we were in the heart of the neighborhood at that point. And, but you know, it was laughs and hugs and yeah, at the end they just said, don't come back. And that was it. <laughs> And they, I mean, they, they, you were also recording video and they, they went through the video and they told you, oh, okay, well, we're going to review these and then we'll send them to you. Totally. Right, so then, right, right, like, right. The, these guys who kidnapped you, interrogated you, are going to send your videos back, did they? FedEx them back to the United States. Like, honestly, it was a month probably. Uh, FedEx them back to the United States with only a couple minutes clipped out of them which was absolutely wild, like properly sent videotapes back, which yeah. true, true to their word. Yeah. yeah. You, in, in, was, was that a moment? I mean, did you guys talk about faith? I mean, is, is this what we were talking about earlier? Is that a moment where this came out or? For sure. I mean, we like always honest. They were like, what are you? It always comes up right in these mm -hmm. contexts, I think of them trying to suss out, okay, what do you believe or where are you? And telling them, okay, we're Christians, uh, they're like, don't like it, but okay, this is something we can, we can work with. Uh, and then working through it kind of, yeah, I mean, so many times. I remember being on a plane from Somalia once where I thought the plane was going to get hijacked because a bunch of Pathan Afghan, like, have you ever met a Pathan? They're humongous. No. Like Patans, the tri like the major tribe of of Afghanistan, they are like six five, three hundred pound, just strapping. They're big men, 
So on a plane from Somalia to, I think it was going to Dubai, they all sat up at the front and I thought, I'm fully going to get, this plane is getting hijacked and crashed into Dubai. So I thought, okay, if this is happening, I'm going to go sit with the bros. So I went up and sat with the Patans and uh, got in a conversation with one where the whole time he was trying to convert me to Islam, right? Where you just have to say that there's one God, but God, and he is Allah. And and yeah. yeah, like Muhammad is like, yeah, exactly, in Arabic. So he just kept trying to coach me to say it. And I was like, no, I'm a Christian. Like, I can't say it. I cannot say it. I'm a Christian. But also then he was like, he would give up and be like, okay, cool. Like we could talk at that point, right? I had my belief. He had his belief. Again, in with Hezbollah, I had my belief. They had their belief. But it was a belief they could understand. It wasn't secular humanism, which great secular humanism. But to them, I feel that's like, what is this? I don't understand what this is. If you believe in a God and a prophet and or Jesus, this is something we can disagree on fundamentally, but something we understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Children of Abraham. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I, based on your your other two books, I had thought that that was a turning point and that you were sort of off travel to the Middle East after um, after that event. But you after this, you, you go back to Yemen. And this is this is as we're getting deeper into the, you know, so-called global war on terror. And um, you keep using this great phrase. You, uh, you, you go back to Yemen and then on to India in search of the, quote, headwaters of mo- modern radical Islamic terrorism that led to our current global war on terror. And you keep repeating that. And, 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 and you're, you're a really funny writer. And it just, it, it, it is so ironic and so self-effacing. And the, the interaction, be- and this is actually a really lovely book about friendship. Um, and friends on the road and and your interactions. Um, so anyway, that that's the premise of this this last section. You're you're going back to Yemen, and and things are a little different at this point because we've got a, a few years into the Bush administration and and so forth. Can you, can you talk about that? I mean, yeah, like it's funny to think that uh, Islam is the main enemy uh, now, right? Where we have Russia back claiming the mantle of our you know, great Western foe. Um, but then it was this idea of Islam is what's going to, this is our enemy, right? And so what is the root? And there was a root. There was an actual root of this sort of epic revolt against anything Western, against what the, the idea of the West. And it was, there was a headwater. And it actually was in India. It was in a Indian like uh, school, basically Islamic school, and Madrasa and the exactly, Madrasa. I mean, I mean, but this is but this is countering the sort of the dominant narrative in the press and in, in academia that you know it's um it's Wahhabism, uh, stemming from what late late eighteenth early nineteenth century um, Arabian Peninsula revolt, but. What you and and um, um, I'm sorry, was Josh. it is it Josh? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, he basically sorted out that there is there's been this fomenting in this madrasa in India well before like Wahhabism is 
you know, whatever. It's that's not legit. Like this thing is fine enough, but this thing is this isn't it. It's this thing coming from this madrasa that comes from a family in Yemen. And so we have to go back to Yemen and find if we could find the actual this is the one family that all of this sprang from, right? That all of this heavy Islamic revolt against America or not America, against America, but against the West where we are Western not, imperialism, Western precisely, imperialism. I mean, precisely. Yeah. We are not going to go along with this thing. We are going to revolt against this. We're not going to be bought in. We're not going to be accepting. We're not going to be part of Western imperialism, which they shouldn't have been right. I mean, who's Western imperialism good for? We can go in, especially back then imperialize and say, Hey, little, you know, local peasant bro, this thing's good for you too. Let us teach you about capitalism. It's awesome. You can get rid of this American dream and up. Come on. We're bullshit, right? I mean, for them, bullshit. Like they should have revolted against that idea. And there was this one great strain, which again, wasn't Wahhabism, wasn't uh, Bin Laden, wasn't this kind of Saudi thing. It was essentially, Madras was in India, but it was essentially Yemeni. And so to go find the family that started this was felt like an epic quest and to yeah, ride motorcycles across Yemen once again to find them uh, mm-hmm. felt like, I mean, just it, it was just felt epic and we kind of did, but yeah, like funny how history moves on where again, during that mission, and then even writing the book, thinking that, okay, this is the great friction against the West is going to be Islam. And it's not anymore. Like, it's funny how it's totally fallen away. Like, when was the last time anyone or you thought about Islamic fundamentalism as the great, uh, you know, I don't know, opponent to Western <laughs> ideology? Well, we are speaking on August 5th, 2022, and two or three days ago, the President of the United States announced the uh, assassination of the uh, leadership of Al-Qaeda in in Afghanistan, which the United States pulled out with a drone strike. I mean, there's still something going on. But doesn't it seem like, I mean, more or less, being rude here, but Biden trying to, yeah, Josh, buddy, texted me when that happened, buddy in the book, uh, and was like, finally, Biden understood that when things are going bad, you break a few eggs. And by breaking eggs, I mean, kill Muslims. Uh, Where it felt like a sort of strategic, you know, my poll numbers are down. What did Bush do? What did Bush one do? What did Clinton do? What did Obama do? Ah, you go kill Muslims. And, but it doesn't feel like it has the same weight anymore, does it? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay agnostic on this one. <laughs> I'm going to give this a little more thought. But um, do you, think, yeah, do you, I mean, it, do you yeah. think the public cares anymore? Do you think the public is still 9-11 so far in the rear view, like Al-Qaeda, a relic of now older people's memories, really, right? I mean... 9-11 yeah, yeah, happened yeah. over 
how long ago? Bad math. 20? Uh, coming up on 21 years. 20 we're talking, years in August, we're talking right. August uh, 2022. And so there's my older daughter, almost 21, was born right before 9-11, has lived in kind of, was a toddler and middle schooler in the after, has no, you know, like whatever, when she goes to the airport, we have to take off our shoes, is not thinking about the shoe bomber or, you know, like the kind of things we do at the airport now is just, that's what we do. It has no attachment to any Islamic terrorism to her, where I, I just feel like there's a generation now who hasn't felt is like that was a spark and it was a mm-hmm. heavy spark. Uh, but what, what now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, getting back to the book. Um, <laughs> so you, you, you interview someone from the family in Yemen and then you go on this adventure to India and then things kind of go in a different direction, right? Yeah. I mean, I think at the end, maybe I was feeling like I am right now about what even was this? This was a moment yeah. in history. This was a, uh-huh. a decade plus, I suppose from Soviet invasion of Afghanistan to 9-11 to, I don't know, to 2015, 16. Like that was it. That was the window. I'm thinking that was all there was for this, for this moment. And so even right. Clash of civilizations moment that Samuel Huntington kind of discourse dominating, right? Precisely. But then that this clash of civil, but again, it could come back. Of course, like the Islamic world can reload Islamic world. the, you know, somebody like madrasas, but it, it just feels like a weird bygone era. Doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it was so, again, yeah, so globally dominant, not just in American culture, but, you know, it, this global fixation. Um, I, I don't know, after the past, uh, what are we on, two and a half years of COVID? Yeah. Uh, what was what was life like before this? What were we concerned about before this? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been, I, I think that, I think what you're, you're tapping into is just sort of a larger sort of, I mean, I don't know what, like, collective disorientation that we're going through for sure and then weirdly i think russia coming back as a bad guy probably Uh feels comfortable to a lot of people like especially older people of like oh yeah this reminds me of my childhood exactly (laughs) this is a foe that i remember and doesn't freak me out because again russia's not a i think that's what was back to the book disconcerting for a lot of people about uh, those war on terriers is Islam was something that people were women, all kinds of people were friggin' blowing themselves up for this idea, right? You don't see stinking Russian soldiers in Ukraine strapping on, you know, suicide vests and going, Nobody believes this is back to a, this idea of, you know, we have these governments and the governments make these soldiers do stuff and the soldiers do stuff and the governments may be against each other. And this all makes sense, I think, right? Like this window of having people who believed something so much that they would blow themselves up for it was terrifying. And that's gone now. Mm-hmm. Now we mm-hmm. have, we're back to, okay, 
Putin, he is bad. And those troops probably don't want to be fighting for him. So yeah. they're yeah. so bad. And, and then conversely, and, and I think you'd be very, very hip to this, um, the um, the response of the United States to this um, this threat that's a non-state actor was also really bonkers. Uh, I mean, oh, bonkers. The global war on terrorism, a war on terrorism. I mean, terrorism is a tactic. It's uh-huh. not an ideology. And it and and even more disconcerting, it's not a state. It's not a it doesn't have fixed boundaries. I mean, what does that mean? Like Bush's whole discourse. I mean, it just it was so mind-boggling and and also so dangerous because it again not having uh, a geographic political state boundary it could go anywhere and did go anywhere like as cheney talked about going to the dark side and and who knows i mean decades from now we'll find out about operations in the horn of africa that we don't know anything about and operations elsewhere right but also how it turned us right where Uh from bush to and then spiked in Obama. People love Obama. He's a great president, you know, like fine man, I'm sure. Yeah, he, he, went, he went to he went to Punahou, so I'm always a little I mean I, I went to Yolani. I went to his rival high school in Harvard. Okay, so, so, it's, yeah. It was a little it was, it was a rough eight years for me, but go on. You can <laughs> spike him right here of like extra ju- judicial killings under the yeah. Obama era, where yeah. we are, there's no judge, there is no jury. We are going to fly drones and kill families, families in the Middle East, straight up willy-nilly. If we think- no, in, 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 in famously in Yemen, where you've spent all this time and you had these real connections. I mean- So many, <laughs> so many, where there's like, so this idea that now America as, it's all good. If we can brand you as a terrorist, we can send a drone out to you. And just like with, of course, you know, whatever Al Qaeda dude who got just got nailed. Zahar, who was it again? It was Zahari. Zahari, uh, yeah, yeah, whoever it was. Uh, you know, whatever. But the public doesn't even care. Like, you know, where's the detail? Like, so turning America, like that's what the global war on terror. Where okay, let's just fly drones out and kill whoever we want, and it's, and if we mess up, uh, it's you know broken eggs. Kill a few Arabs like awful and like i think the global war on terror historically you as a historian think in a hundred years it will be looked back upon you're exactly right it was a war against a tactic not even an ideology where all rules went out the window because we will kill who we want when we want where we want how we want for whatever reason we want which how does that how does that seep in moving forward? Yeah, yeah. Did you ever read Mike Davis's book, um, Buddha's Wagon? Buddha oh. B-U-D-A, Buddha's Wagon, not Buddha as in Buddha, but Buddha's Wagon. It's on the history of the car bomb. Oh. And its origins. And I think what I think the first car bombing was maybe a horse-drawn cart outside the New York Stock Exchange. Don't quote me on that. Oh, this sounds uh, he, he wrote it about 15 years ago in in the start of Bush's global war on terror. And um, it's it's really thoughtful. I mean, Mike, Mike Davis, I mean, he, it's been announced he's, you know, he's got terminal cancer. And so I've been thinking a lot about him lately, but it's really insightful in this difficulty of, of state actors to fight against tactics. I mean, it's um, crazy. And, and for states to fight against non-state actors. I mean, it, it's, it, uh, it also, you know, is 
as a historian, it, it makes me think about that, um, you know, the nation state is a new phenomenon, comes out of the French Revolution, yeah. um, spreads through Europe in the 19th century, gets applied around the world via Western imperialism and decolonization. And maybe it is a fleeting way of organizing humanity. Do you think um, so? And there's so many challenges. Well, there's so many challenges to the nation state from, from international capital, from the flow of information, um, from labor migration. I mean, um, I, I totally agree. But look, I mean, again, through my experience in the Middle East, Balfour Declaration, those nations yeah. are by and large false, right? I mean, again, Jordan doesn't really exist as a yeah. thing. Syria is weird. I mean, ancient, but the borders as they are, Saudi Arabia is entirely made up. Uh, Yemen, Ar- arguably, Iraq was designed to be unstable. I mean, there's an argument there. Precisely, precisely. And the, and like the the trouble is that there, these borders were drawn around, like where it should have never been. But yeah. And 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 but look at the the attempts to uh, rectify that with um, uh, the Pan Arab movement in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties and the response of the West to that or or you know to tie it in and and this is you know I, the whole time I was reading reading um, your book reports from hell I was I was thinking about you know he could have done this in Southeast Asia at the same time yeah. and got got better surf um, but the um, JI Jamaa Islamia one yeah. of the um, the the more significant uh, terrorist organizations. I mean, their their ideology and their 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 goals are erasing the the lines on the map drawn by the British and the Dutch. Which they makes want sense. A, a greater Malay uh, caliphate. I mean, which which oh yeah, organically, if he, if sense. Southeast Asia had been left alone, that is the way the region would have developed. But this bizarre. Uh, line separating the Malay Peninsula from Sumatra and then putting Sumatra in the same nation state as Java and Bali and Sumba and Flores and, and I can name them somewhere without surf, but Borneo. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, Bizarre. Yeah, it's, it, yeah. And, and, and again, you know, from, from my little area of expertise, I, I found so much value reading, reading this book and your sort of reflections and, and experiences on the ground in that region. So um, you've been really generous with your time. Um, before we let you go, uh, two questions we always finish up with. Um, first, um, uh, can you recommend two books uh, for the listeners uh, they think they should read? Welbeck's Submission, which I already, yeah, referenced. The novel, yeah. It is a phenomenal book. So for those who don't know, it is basically uh, what it looks like when radical Islam gets voted in to the French government, where it is such a phenomenal book. Uh, have you and read and with, with, with all the disclaimers that accompany um, invoking Welbeck in an academic audience, that he's a little enfant terrible of, of French literature and has a, you know, we're, we're open to the marketplace of ideas, but I, I know that um, many of his statements are, are, are quite controversial. Inflammatory, but it is a, it is a <laughs> yeah. brilliant book. Uh, I, 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 and, and I, I appreciate that book in the same way I appreciate um, Celine yeah. um, and, um, uh, and his novels. I mean, he, you know, he's a despicable uh, individual, yet this literature is amazing. Yeah. Go and Okay. And Submission second, and? I'm going to say, so I'm deep into yeah. ballet right now. Daughter's Ballet. 
I live, yeah. breathe, eat, sleep ballet. Love ballet. Uh, where Bolshoi Confidential, which is, oh. I can't remember, I'm looking for it here. I can't remember who it's by, but it is. So it's basically the history of the Bolshoi theater. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, mm-hmm. Brilliantly written from the start of the Bolshoi till when I, I think it came out, I don't know, 10 years ago, probably. But ballet as, again, we should have a whole nother historical conversation about ballet. Ballet yeah. as a pusher of state ideas and ideology is brilliant. And this book is absolutely epic like a Bolshoi, Bolshoi confidential Bolshoi confidential okay great yeah and um uh well I'm gonna ask you what you're working on now but um give it give a give a quick plug for your your most recent book of two years ago um oh, no yeah. not two years ago uh three four months ago the um ago, Bless, yeah. uh, blessed are the bank robbers blessed are the bank robbers yeah cousin Dan yeah. my cousin uh robbed a bunch of banks and then went and robbed a bunch more and so while he was on the lamb uh, robbing banks reached actually reached or accidentally or not accidentally, but reached out to me. Uh, and I thought, Oh man, I really wanted the book to be about me going to find him on the lamb and actually living on the lamb. He was arrested before I could get him again, but it's just sort of the idea of, I don't know, the, the beauty of bank robbing, this literary ideal of bank who hasn't thought about robbing a bank. I thought about it a lot. And Cousin Dan robbed a bunch. He's close to the record, I think. And so, yeah, just this. And he's also, again, talked about Christianity a bunch here, but was raised just like me, you know, a Christian. And so how this fits together and in this bigger idea of, yeah, robbing banks. All right. And and so that, that, that came out a couple months ago. And what are you working on now? A kid's book. Uh, no. Yeah. A, what's what's a Chaz Smith kids book? Well, that's the thing. That's so. Uh, I guess a couple of years ago, probably now. Uh, daughter, my daughter's nine. The ballet ballerina, uh, seven at the time, probably. Just watching this Amazon show that was so. I mean, I've watched kids stuff with her since she was born, right? Like, uh, and this one was just real simple. It was called Mortimer Gibbons, My Life on Normal Street, and it was just this cute, fun kids story. And I totally loved it. I like looked forward to watching it every evening with her. There was nothing heavy in the material. It was all fun, but it was just real warm. And I thought I should do something like, like, why couldn't like, this is my ride or die. This, my daughter, like I should do something for her. I should write something for her. So yeah, what I've been working on since then the Diamond Head Detective Club, a Hawaii-based kids. Hawaii has so much great from Magnum PI to Hawaii Five-O to Charlie Chan. Yeah, Charlie Chan to, you know, all of these great Hawaiian detectives, like this great detective history. So it's a kids detective Hawaiian story. Well, Magnum PI is crap, but it's all, it's all about the original Hawaii Five-O. I mean, um, exactly. <laughs> Even the actually, I actually wrote an academic. Pe- I wrote an academic piece on Hawaii Five O and uh, and Cold War uh, Orientalism. Oh, you got to send um, it to me. That was. I got to watch a whole bunch of old Hawaii Five O. I grew up in the same neighborhood that uh, Jack Lord lived in, 
um, um, near Diamond Head, and I used to see him in the market. And Jack Lord, when he was Steve McGarrett, was not acting. That was his persona in the market. And he'd, he'd drive this cat convertible Cadillac with a shirt buttoned down halfway down his chest with an ascot and a straw hat zipping around. That makes me so happy. That makes me so and Magnum, happy. Magnum, Magnum represents the Reagan uh, conservative reaction. Um, uh, although, you know, Magnum is, um, is Casablanca. Yeah. Do you have to pick, I mean, it's Rick's yes. place and all that. Yeah. Yes. It, but yeah, that's you, the, I mean, the one nice thing I'll say about that. You should be writing this book, but yeah, like I'm in my head at least in Honolulu every day, like down the streets. Yeah. But it's kids. It's kids solving crime. If you need a fact checker, hit me up. Um, definitely, <laughs> I'll send you a copy before it goes to press. Yeah. Hey, Chess Smith, thanks so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Okay, so this has been a conversation with Chaz Smith about his third book, Reports from Hell, out with Rare Books in 2020. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.